Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. All right, episode number 226. This is part three of our interview with John Nicholson, who's a staff technical marketing architect at VMware. Just as a review, part one, which was episode 224, we talked about tech marketing as a career path, considerations before taking the role, uh, understanding the job, filling out the management, looking for red flags, and, and dealing with executives. Part two was episode 225, where we discussed compensation, good and bad managers, resources on doing your homework for the position and negotiating comp compensation, stocks as part of compensation, and what goes into raises. So this week, uh, what are we looking forward to, Nick? Well, remember, we had to negotiate on the close of last week's episode, so we're going to start off with ways to negotiate an offer and some knobs that you can turn that maybe you're not thinking about to adjust what the initial offer is that's presented to you. And then, John, we're going to talk about what a purple squirrel is and how you find one. And that's all I'm going to say on that. That's right. That term did come up. It was an interesting one. I would also look out for the personal finance advice. I thought John had a lot of really good things to say about that. But let's uh, stop talking about what we're about to hear and actually get to it. Episode number 226, part three of our discussion with John Nicholson. If you're negotiating for some kind of offer, since we're talking about all the stocks and compensation, you know, you have health insurance costs that you pay, some portion that the company pays, you have wellness benefits, you have things like the 401k, the stocks, all those things. Can you negotiate and say, hey, listen, the the health insurance is more than where I came from and I want you to put something in the offer letter that says you're going you're gonna to pay for that instead of paying me more salary, quote, does that hit a different bucket on the back end P and L that will? It's generally, I, I think those have to be pretty flat offers. Four hundred one k matches, those have to be even. In fact, the company will get they'll get basically get hit if what are called highly compensated individuals, the execs, are the only people using the full match. Um, the IRS will basically say, uh, 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 you can't design fringe benefits that only benefit the the highly paid individuals. There's a bunch of stuff the IRS does. You're better off saying, look, this this fringe benefit's not there. Or like 
you know, my last company, they let me fly business and you want me to fly to Australia once a month and 17 hours in coach. I'm going to be probably just paying to upgrade myself or I'm going to need to pay for chiropractor or massages or whatever to fix my back from that nonsense. You know, you can basically use any difference. And I list all kinds of stuff. I literally list like what kind of hotels do they put you up in? You know, do they put you up in the Motel 6 versus like, oh, yeah, you can stay in a normal a normal band six Marriott. We won't freak out. Those are little differences. But if you can go to that, you know, when you're in that negotiation phase and I like to go to them and say, look, the health isn't quite as good or this isn't as good or the travel or your expense policy is insane um, or whatever this is. And I know this isn't this isn't going to break it. I want to work this job. Let's talk about which bucket. And I, I've point blank just told a recruiter, like, look, I see there's a bonus. Can we change that percentage? A lot of companies, they may say, look, in this band, the bonus is 17 percent, you know, and beyond that, it's going to be your manager discretion. OK, fine. We can't negotiate bonus. OK. Is there room in, in there to raise the actual base salary? Now, typically, they have rules on on a band that if it goes above a certain threshold, they have to kick it to the next band. They may have room there. They may not. You may be coming in at the top of the band, which can be good, can be bad. It'll force someone to have a conversation quickly about a promotion. But inversely, you know, if you're not working out, typically, they're, they try to distribute the raises heavier to people on the bottom of a band lighter on the top they basically they try to force managers to have a hey promote this person or get them off payroll then they may say like look you're at the top of the band already you're gonna have to talk to your manager in the next you know two years anyways about a promotion okay what about the rsu bucket and that's where you can this is where you can play mr nice game like look i really believe in this company i think it's gonna go places bonus base that's fine you know those are good i like them i can live off that i i want to i want to i want to enjoy the risk with the company can we can we can we see more RSUs? Can you make them all vest in one year? Well, the the, the cliff are generally that's that's all strange. But no, you joke about that. But I, I've heard at startups that at some places it literally it's to the point that like some companies they literally like design your own comp package of like base versus options. And some people I've I've some friends who are in the Bay who they both work for tech companies and basically I have this married couple. One of them always tries to work at a stable you know, well-known company that you and I would all recognize the name of. And the other one is working at like, I don't know, the next Twitter for pets or something like the most like crazy startups. And they basically structure it to where like one of them tries to basically make sure they have enough, they can live off their salary. And the other one is like, yeah, I want as low a base pay as possible. And I want to see that option as high as absurd. I want to, I want, you know, I, I'm going to, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be awesome and I'm going to solve all these problems. I want to make sure that once we hit our, our unicorn exit, I can retire, you know, and, and that's that's a strategy. And that's that gets back to like your own personal situation. Like, are you wealthy from this? And and when you see some of these people who take crazy risks, actually, founders are the worst about this. Some of these founders, they had a good offer. They had an offer from, you know, Cisco offered them two billion dollars or whatever. But because they've already had two good exits or they already made a bunch of money as a senior VP somewhere else. They're swinging for the fences and you're sitting there like, hey, take the two billion dollar offer. That'll give me enough money to like, I don't know, pay off my house. I'm happy with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like this is actually part of the problem of work, particularly on the on the, the pre IPO side to where your risk tolerances and your founder risk tolerances can be completely different. And there's also something called secondary offerings. Go look at Crunchbase and, and I have a buddy who works at a company and like his companies had like four secondary offerings. And this is where the execs instead of take an exit and like go make everyone money, they go sell sh their shares, but they're not selling liquidity in the company. So they're taking money from investors, but it's not going to the company 
they're literally just they're basically lo- lowering their ownership stake and then making sure they have enough money to retire but not giving you an exit so i've been told some vc like to do with secondary offerings it's like hey we want to give them a taste of the good life give them enough money to go buy a mclaren and then think about that you know that that multi-billion dollar exit instead of that hundred million dollar exit and the problem is is when you like have bills to pay and just want to you know have more modest retirement goals this is where having founders who want to swing for the fences sometimes they get greedy and then you get ratchet claws and it all ends in tears let's say i don't work for a tech company but i do tech for a, another company I might still have some considerable wellness benefits and things like that that I need to take into consideration. Maybe there's a stipend each year or each quarter. Maybe there's some kind of portion of the benefits that gets you, I don't know, clinical coaching or telehealth visits for free. The weirdest benefit I've ever gotten to working here was a training that we did. It was with... uh a company, they did professional speaker training and they brought in these people who were like hardened trial lawyers. It was like two days of the most intensive speaker training I've ever had. And they would record you and they would, they would make you watch it back in slow motion. But it was wild how much it improved all of our speaking abilities. And that's the type of investment, like spending $10,000 on five members of your team for two days to go make them better speakers is not something like companies casually do. Uh, but there are companies that were like ten thousand, yeah, ten thousand dollars. We have, you know, whatever these guys who are, I don't know, space welders or something. Like that's a normal thing. But go through, and and that's why, like, I go through and I ask for that. Or sometimes it's flexibility. Like, there's people who I've talked to who are like, look, I don't want to make more money. I just want to not work Fridays. That's that's a very real thing. Or work from home all the time instead of having to go to the office at all. Or some people want to go to the office because they've got things at home they're trying to get away from. Or they they live in a a shack or something and it's like my wife and I and two kids live in 800 square feet like that that's not fun uh, <laughs> and we all work from home you know and they're homeschooled like work from home sounds great until you realize that means you're basically funding office space for the for the organization and they aren't necessarily compensating for you you for that which means that you need to escalate your lifestyle by buying like a bigger house or renting you know an apartment with more rooms an extra bedroom here for an office is about 40000 in the urban core of Houston. I did the math in Palo Alto because I noticed that like during COVID lockdown, my VP was like working. He was video calling me from his daughter's bedroom. And I was like, oh, wait, an extra bedroom there is an extra 2000 a month. You work backwards from the mortgage. So like that's a thing. And maybe like you like working remote and you're willing to go live in somewhere cheaper. And some companies, they also have offsets for that. Some companies aren't transparent about it. Some companies have an internal tool where you can put in two zip codes and they'll be like, yeah, we'll just, here's the offset. The more senior you are, the more there's, I feel like more pushback on that of like, I'm a 15 year veteran. I'm a purple squirrel. You're just going to pay me this no matter where I live. The more junior you are, eh, the more they'll, they'll kind of push back. That's a really good episode titled the purple squirrel with John Nicholson. I like that. Purple squirrel is a term that recruiters use that basically describes where you see this like impossible list of like weird skills. This happens a lot with internal IT or like we need someone who knows how to write Perl and manage this ancient database from the 80s that we're the only people who use and also is like, I don't know, a network architect and um, also knows how to wash cars like or something like it's just like, okay, the one person who has those skills and is willing to do them all already worked for you and they just left and maybe they left for a reason and you need to like chill out hire someone with 60 percent of what you need and let them grow in or split that into two roles or reassign like it's basically a term that says you're looking for something that doesn't exist 
I don't know why they call it purple squirrel, but it's like something all recruiters in HR use as a term. Unicorn was already taken. By the way, they're fun to drink with. Not your own HR. Go drink with other people's HR and like recruiters. Because your own, like, that's a bad idea. I try to make sure my HR doesn't know I exist. Love you guys if you're listening. But like going and talking with other HR people and be like, they have the best stories. You're like, hey, tell me that, like, what's the most ridiculous reason you know someone got fired? Or like, what's the weirdest offer? Like, who's getting paid the most and you're angry about it? That, those are the fun questions. This gets back to like, you should always have questions to ask people. If I'm in a cab in a foreign country, I'm like, hey, what's the weirdest stuff you've ever seen? I'll also ask that to people who work any 24 hour job. Like you just, you learn things about different industries and all kinds of things. John has the, the, the best uh, questions. That's an alternative uh, episode title. Yeah, or or just throw in as one of your questions. So, do you know what a purple squirrel is? And if not, I can't work here. That's actually <laughs> something where, like, if you were that weird person who they have literally listed a lot of really random stuff, and you're like the one guy who has it, like, stare down the recruiter and be like, "Look, I'm the purple squirrel. You're not going to find anyone else. Show me the money." Like, you you need that bear stare that you talked about before. I think we would need to be trained on that before we could really stare down the recruit. Yeah, if you could just see how intense the eyes are on video here, you'd be intimidated. Be likable, seem kind of lively and fun, but also like randomly switch to being deadly serious about execution. That's that's my swagger. So for interviews and processes, but and there there are some other things by the way that I get into in there a little bit that I've talked about. Um, there's some real fun stuff. Like some companies will let you do like mega backdoor Roth to where you can do like really wild stuff on tax avoidance longer term, not like short term. The IRS doesn't like that, but the more senior you are, the more you dig into this stuff and and, you know, what does the company do at anniversaries or like nonprofit match? Like VMware gives you it's, it's the number pi it's 3,100, 3.1. $3,100, $4,5, $45, and like trailing cents or whatever. If you donate to any nonprofit that's registered in the US, they'll give you an equivalent amount of money. If you donate to charities or things like that, that's actually pretty cool. And companies like that's a benefit that they like doing. A lot of companies will do nonprofit type matches because they get to write off their match on taxes too. Getting into insurance, the HSAs look for will they pre fund part of that? So maybe your max out of profit's $5,000, but if they'll throw you $1,700 and pre fund that account, if you have an HSA, Make sure it's invested. Do not let it sit in cash. This is the health savings account. Health savings account. Health savings account. Everybody's going to health savings accounts. You're going to get that. If you want to get really fancy, there's all kinds of stuff you can do with HSAs. Like never just save your receipts forever because you can always claim them later. Invest it and that money goes in tax-free. It grows tax-free. And then you pull it out 50 years later and it's tax-free because you had a 50-year-old receipt. There's all kinds of like wild, like hyper optimizations you can do with some of these benefits. And this is stuff you're not going to do when you're like fresh out of school and you're making 50 grand, and you're broke. But as you become a more senior person, there's a lot of kind of stuff you can do to help work backwards towards leaving the industry on your own terms for good. That's something you should have like a date where you're like, you know what? I want to work past this. But if everyone, ang- if, if I lose my job and everyone's annoying me, I want to be able to be like, you know what? I'm out. Like, I don't want to be that guy who's like burnout, making half what he used to and is like having to work and angry. Like, I've met that guy. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah, you're starting to touch a little bit on personal finance, which I think if we could talk a little bit about, it it seems like one of those things where it makes sense to be healthy before the uncertain times or heading in. If you know that times are a little bit uncertain, it's time to maybe do a health check on your personal finance and, and see whether you're 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 fighting the good fight on, on that front what do you have any recommendations there 
So one thing to think about is the lower you're paid, the easier it is to find a job. People like when I when I long time ago was a bar bartender, bar manager, waiter. When you work that kind of job, anyone who loses their job or gets fired and as a waiter can walk across town, find some other restaurant, and go start tomorrow. Like when you're really at the bottom of the career ladder, and I mean truly the bottom, like you're the guy fixing printers or something. There's probably some other equally terrible, poorly paid job that you can find. As you kind of crawl out of that, okay, you know I've got some self respect, I've got some standards, I've got some capabilities. Like I'm not going to work for that. You're not, you're not going to pay me 40000 and I'm going to work 80 hours. You know, you, you slowly crawl out of that. Well, then you get to those senior roles, and it starts getting to be you're paid, you're respected. Maybe you do have those skills, but the amount of people who are looking for those roles, it is a smaller funnel. You know, it's something to recognize. And there are some rules I've heard of, like, once you get above 80000 like, at for every 10000 at a week or at a month to your job search. And I don't think that those really apply in tech. I think we're probably w- much more well compensated, and there's just a lot of jobs. But it is something to think about to where like, you know what, if you're a sales engineer and you've got a bunch of relationships and you're good at learning quick, you're probably pretty flexible. You can probably land another offer. You might not like it, but you can land a decent offer in a pretty quick amount of time. If you're, you know, a niche specialist in a niche database, you got to think about like, if I lose my job and I'm an expert on, again, like foundation to be something that like, okay, Apple uses that. A couple other people use it. You're, you're getting paid well if you ha- if you know that, but there's not that many people looking for it. You may think, okay, I need to have some runway. I need to have some some powder some gunpowder sitting there in reserve ready for that. And so that's where, you know, there's rules of thumb. People say, try to keep six months of money in reserve or things like that. Try to have an emergency, you know, stash of money, you know, or have that emergency plan. The longer you work, you should start trying to have, you know, so to speak more and more. Now, what do you do with that money? Do you let it sit in cash? If you're just someone who's a nervous ball of nerves, then by all means, sure. Um, But there are some alternatives to that. Part of the thing is holding cash. Let's say you make 200000 a year and you want to keep six months reserve. So you keep 100000 If you keep 100000 in cash and inflation's at 8 9% right now, you're burning $9,000 a year to like have that money just sit there as cash. So then it becomes a, I need that money and I need that money not to go down at the same time I lose my job. But I also like to have it in something that like, I don't know, gets a little bit of yield. So maybe you say, okay, I'm going to buy two-year treasuries or maybe I'm going to buy um, actually a great product from the, from the US Treasury. I'll shrill for the U.S. government here. Uh, if you go to Treasury Direct, uh, their website, you can buy what are called I-Series bonds. You can buy 10000 per social security number in your house, and they are indexed to inflation. And so if inflation goes up, they go up. And that's kind of fun. And, and what I've been doing is I'm laddering. So I'm buying 10000 a year of those. And I'm going to get up to basically shift to where my emergency stash for that six months is in I-Series bonds because then I don't really have to think about it because they'll go up in value as inflation goes up. So it'll just auto adjust the equivalent spending of a hundred, you know, let's say I was trying to get a hundred thousand in there today. Once I get a hundred thousand in there, it'll go up with inflation. Then I don't necessarily have to worry about adjusting it quite as much. You could maybe keep it in. Okay. I'm going to keep it in blue chip stocks. I'm going to keep it in um, an investment fund that targets the top fortune, you know, 100 companies or 500 companies because those, those stocks don't shift quite up and down as much. Uh, maybe on the aggregate, there's some swings, you know, maybe Meta did something stupid with VR or something and it's going to go down. But the reality is if you look at those blue chips, if you look at the largest bad stock event, your downturns, your clawbacks are generally no more than 20%. And so if you can, let's say your goal is 100,000, but you can have 120,000 invested in blue chip stocks, you can enjoy some of the upside, fight inflation. And at the same time, even if the market's down and you lose your job at the same time, you still have your, you still have what your target was. 
So there's some kind of thoughts there on like, rather than just hoarding cash and like keeping cash in a mattress, so to speak, you can have at least some of that, maybe keep some of that money in cash, but have some of it in I-series bonds. By the way, I-series bonds, they lock up for one year, but that's why if you just keep buying 10,000 a year, you'll eventually have enough. If you sell them before five, they claw back the interest that they earned on the last 90 days, but that's, that's fine. You know, if you lose your job, you need that money. Okay. So you can sell them immediately to get out of it if you run into a hard time. One, it's one year after the buy date. So I just bought some, I bought them on January 29th or 30th so I could get the end of the January credit. So technically that counts as a month. So it's really 11 months from that date. I'll be able to sell those, but I've also been buying them for other previous years. So those other years I could sell. And, and U.S. Treasury bonds, the I-series, you can, you can basically, you're redeeming them. If you're buying treasuries, the U.S. Treasury market's the most liquid market in the world. There's truly, literally trillions of liquidity there. Those are things. And historically, like, I would have made fun of bonds because when interest rates were zero, they yielded nothing. I'm like, the joke, kind of like savings accounts. Those are some things to where maybe you t- rather than hold it all as cash that six months, you take a blended approach. You know, you buy some I-series, you buy some treasuries that you can sell, you buy some blue chip stocks that, okay, worst case, they're down 20%, but I can still live with that having to sell down at that point. You know, those are some of the things you can do to, to have that money. And you also need to like find some tools to look at where your money's going. And there's various products out there. Some people keep, try to keep this in spreadsheets. I like to do a one month review of like, Okay, what were all the top expenses on all our credit cards? Categorize that stuff. I use personal capital, which is less of a actually of a spending management tool, which I guess mint and other stuff exists. It's probably a little better in that space. It's more of a finance tool. It gives you like an aggregate macro picture of all your money. So once you start having money, uh, it's probably a better tool. If you're just trying to like you're broke and you're trying to not be broke, uh, mint or something that's more, you know, aimed at that. Or you need a budget, YNAB, I think is another product a lot of people like, um, those types of tools. Those are good. And like sitting down, you know, if you're, if you're uh, in a relationship with someone sitting down with, you know, the other members of your household, forcing them once a month to like stare at those and be like, sort by top spends and be like, I try to do a one month, like, okay, what are our top spends? Why are these? I also try to look at it from a cash flow basis. And there's people who try to do like, I'm going to have specific envelopes or sub savings accounts for various goals and things like that. I'm not that fancy. I, I just look at it from like, okay, cash going out, cash going in, where are we at? If you have large yearly expenses, you do need to factor extra overheads. Like those of us who live in Texas, we have massive property tax and that hits once a year. And if you don't escrow, which is fair, you know, you're loaning someone money at zero percent interest for that. You do need to say, okay, you know, let's say I'm going to be paying 10,000 in property tax, you know, or or 12, let's say it's 12,000. I need to factor in a thousand dollars a month for that, you know, mentally figure out what those meta yearly costs are and do those. But that's something you got to look at and say, like, okay, is my, is my, are my assets going up or down? And that's where aggregating all that. Cause part of the problem is like you end up with money in like your brokerage. Um, you end up with your, uh, your retirement accounts, which may be scattered. Maybe you've got previous 401k accounts. Roll those over, by the way, either into your other 401k or, or roll over IRA. Don't leave them with the old company. They'll do awful weird fee things a lot of times, or they'll like liquidate them into cash. And then you'll just have cash sitting there, not making money. That's a horror show. Appropriate face, John. Appropriate face. Yeah. Talk to someone who's like had a 15 year old, like 401k from a previous company that is just was sitting in cash all that time. Like, and this is the kind of thing is like, okay, where's our money? What is it sitting at? And, and you know what? If all this sounds painful, by all means, go hire a financial advisor. They'll take 1% of your assets a year to manage. That's fine. I don't do it. I like reading the Wall Street Journal and I'm a weird finance nerd. But it is something that 
you know, you, you, you get what you get out. And if you're looking for some good resources, our personal finance on Reddit, they have a wiki that has like every type of scenario. They have all kinds of good stuff, but it is something to think about as like, okay, how do I prepare myself for that? How do I do that? How do I make sure I'm not bleeding money? How do I not have money sitting there idle? Don't, I think frankly, a lot of people just have too much cash. It actually goes the other way. They don't invest enough, but. Yeah. And then you have stuff like, I want to pay for my kid's college and I want to invest in the 401k and put money in for a new car. Yeah. The, the easy mode for that is be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to save up and like for the kid's college, we're going to do a 529. We're going to work backwards of we need to put X amount in. Here's the, and, and like, don't look at the college cost today because the cost of education inflation is completely different. But like, look at predicted where it's going to be, like try to do stuff like that. One thing with the 529s that just came out recently is if you have extra money in there, the kid can roll it over into a Roth IRA, which previously you could kind of get like leftovers in those accounts. And it was like, what if my kid doesn't want to go to college? And it's like, why did I pull this money in here? And there's like penalties to withdraw. So they're actually, they are getting, uh, that was the secure act too, that just passed. There's some, uh, stuff that restricted there. I'm actually currently not doing a 529. Again, I'm a weird person. Please do not copy me. My my situations are probably different than yours. I'm actually heavily investing instead in uh, Roth 401k using what's known as the mega backdoor conversion plan and also Roth IRA. The Roth accounts, I can withdraw the contributions once the account's been seasoned for five years and I can then spend that money on anything. It's, it's post, it was post-tax money going in, so it doesn't matter. Now, I can't withdraw the gains but when when my daughter hits 18, she goes off to school, I can then pull out those those contributions. And that's a bit more flexible. The other things you can do is if you get like super wealthy and you like, you know, let's say you go work. John goes and works for some crazy startup and makes 100 million or something is you can start looking at like family limited partnerships. And this is stuff that like crazy rich people do to where they start doing that to hide money and assets, because if the colleges know you have money, they expect you to pay more. And so there's all kinds of weird games people play. And this is the fun of like, if you're like right now looking at your assets and you're like, uh, I'm a net negative, like I uh, owe 20 grand on my, my credit card and I'm not, I can only pay half that. You probably, maybe you need to go Dave Ramsey. Maybe you need to go, you need a budget. Maybe you need to go envelopes. That's fine. Or automatic millionaires, a good one too. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like, by the way, like I, I hate Ramsey for, for finance. Like once you have money and you want to go spend it, I actually don't like him. But if you have like a spending problem, He's like the AA for people who uh, like are deeply in debt. Yeah, the debt snowball works definitely. Yeah, yeah, snowball on paper technically it's not as good as the alternative, but like psychologically it does work better. So these are things. So I know we've talked about a lot of stuff, and if that's where you are, and you just need to get out of debt, go do that first by all means. But also like look at this as like, hey, this is going to be a lot more. Ex- this stuff sounds complicated, but it's going to be a lot more fun to do once you actually have money and you're not broke. Because I was like broke for a large portion of my twenties, or fairly broke. And I was, I also, you know, ended up marrying someone who was in med school. And so that's, that's a lot of debt. And it was a lot of her not making money and me supporting us both, which is why I say like my financial situation was kind of weird. I remember talking to a financial advisor. I was like, should I be saving a lot more? I'm in an like early IT career, but I think I'll make more. And she's going to be a doctor. And he's like, no, you should just spend everything you have and enjoy your twenties as best you can. Cause you'll, you'll, you'll make money later. Y'all are like the 2% outlier. And this is the stuff with personal finance. This is stuff with career. People look to someone or people, people who were successful will be like, here's how I did it. And you can be like me too. Like, no, no, no. The road behind you is always changing. The specifics of your situation is always different. How you and I got from being guys who fix printers to being, or actually all three of us got, we were all guys who fix printers at some point in our career. Yep. How we got to here, 
that path or the most efficient path to it is probably not what we did. And, and that's something to recognize. And the same with personal finance. This stuff is deeply personal and deeply specific. And there are easy mode solutions. You know, max out your 401k match, put 10%, at least 10% in, use a target date fund, call it a day, pay the fees, call it a day, you know, hire an advantager. If you want to get fancy with this stuff, you want to squeeze more out, you have specific goals, you want to nerd out on the stuff, there is an infinite amount of time and money and stuff you can go do. But I don't want to be the person who sits here and tells you what I did is what you should do because that's not true. I just want to, that's why I like qualifying why I do what I do. Makes sense. You know, part of the uh, thesis of this podcast is to show people like a, a more efficient way of getting ahead in your technology career than than we actually did. And unfortunately for finance, you know, there's no one path, right? It, it's like you said, it's deeply personal to your situation, to where you live, you know, what your family background is and culture, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff goes into that uh, stew. Yeah, three three books I would recommend for anyone who wants to get kind of a better picture on this stuff. Random Walk Down Wall Street. It'll teach you why you're probably not going to beat the market guessing stocks um, as much fun as it is. I would read uh, Freakonomics. It's basically makes stats fun. Um, everyone should read Freakonomics. Just a fun book and read some of the follow-up stuff. Their podcasts aren't bad. Um, if you like listening to podcasts, Planet Money. And then the last one is if you really want to get into like risk and assessment of risk and realize why human beings are so bad at it, but it's been kind of like what's pushed humanity forward uh, against the gods is a great book. You read those three books, read the Wall Street Journal for two years. Congrats. You probably have the equivalent education of like a mid-tier business school major who majored in business admin or something. Nice. That's a great recommendations for books. We always love those. Yep. John, um, anything else you want to talk about before we... Uh wrap it up tonight i i do have a podcast so if anyone wants to listen to it virtually speaking vspeakingpodcast.com uh i talk about infrastructure talk about it other things there we also occasionally interview execs we've had michael dell and other yahoos on kind of fun i have a blog the nicholson.com with some of my rants you'll also find the thinking about taking an offer you need to know and you can find me on twitter if you said thought anything i said was stupid feel free to call me out uh lost underscore signal is my twitter handle Awesome. John Nicholson, thank you so much for joining us on The Nerd Journey. And uh, we will have you back sometime to talk about your actual uh, career walk and all the things that you would do uh, more efficiently at uh, some point in time in the future. Thank you. Part of doing your best work in the negotiation phase is paying attention to where you are in the pay band. There's a range of possible compensation that you're going to get at this company. One of the things maybe we didn't even highlight in the intro and outro from episode 225 is some of the resources that John Nicholson gave us to go and check on possible pay bands, whether it's Glassdoor or Levels.FYI, you can do some of that homework up front. You can find it in a lot of job descriptions, but you also would want to confirm the range with a recruiter. Hopefully you've done a mixture of all those things by the time you get to the negotiation phase of determining, am I going to take this offer? 
can it be a little bit better for me, for example? Excellent points. Just do that work ahead of time. I, I really like the advice, too, because, I don't know, like, I've always thought to myself, like, if you're at the top of a pay band, that might be what you need, but the expectations are also really high. You really need to hit the gra- ground running. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the whole raising and lowering of levels, depending on where you are in the band or outside the band. Yep. That was an interesting conversation. One of the other things John Nicholson talked about was something that I had never even thought of, and maybe it's because I've never worked for a startup. But he said that the risk tolerance you have as an employee of a startup is not or or just may not be the same as the startup founder. The startup founder could be trying to get all the money they can and 100% focused on that out of this endeavor. And you don't actually know what the perspective of that person is necessarily going into it. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And it's something that you need to understand. It's difficult to understand going in. Yeah, you absolutely need to get your best idea of what that is, or at least understand the range of possibilities. I really liked the point that the founder might be way more willing to hold out for a better acquirer or a better exit. And that affects your compensation because you're not going to realize whatever stock grants that you've been given in a private company where your exit is getting those stocks, those grants, um, you know, paid out in, in an acquisition or, a, or go public type of scenario. So the founders and I guess the, the ownership group like that, that's going to affect your compensation over time. So something to keep in mind. Yeah, maybe if it's a small enough startup and you actually get interviewed by the founder or founders, maybe that's something that you can ask them for. Hey, how how high are you shooting with this? Can you give me your perspective on risk tolerance and, and things like that based on your background? Because if this person's had multiple startups, then maybe it's more. Maybe it's less. I don't know. Sure. What What is the exit strategy? You know, maybe they're willing to share that and maybe they're not. But even if you're not talking to the founder, one of the things that you might ask of the the people that are interviewing you is what is your perspective on the exit strategy yeah, and great. what the, you know, your feel for what the strategy is like, what, you know, what are you shooting for? And each person might have their own perspective on that. And, and you want to also ask it in a respectful way, right? It can't be the most important thing, but it clearly is going to be a important thing. Yeah, nobody's going to be offended by you asking. They might be, they and they might have a perspective. Like if it's the only thing that you ask about, then they might think, oh, this person's only out for money or this is all they care about. It's it's a balancing act, right? But it is part of your total compensation in that situation. So it's something that you have to be prepared to discuss. And they hopefully have that perspective as well. I think that some of the things that John mentioned about total compensation and things to take into account were really important. You know, the, the cost of healthcare insurance 
can be wildly variable from company to company. So understanding what your healthcare costs would be when you're evaluating a an offer is is pretty important. And then things like your retirement benefits are also super important. Whether or not and to what degree the company matches an IRA contribution. Something that John mentioned was a mega backdoor Roth IRA or mega backdoor IRA. That's like a huge benefit if the company offers that option. And the earlier that you're able to take advantage of that type of thing, the better. And the you know, the more effect, I guess, long term on your actual retirement. So working for companies that do like a really incredible match and working for companies that have mega backdoor Roth IRAs, mega backdoor IRAs, you know, those are they're two really big compensation uh, components. And if they have a really good healthcare plan, that's, that's also something, you know, if it's really cheap and your out-of-pocket costs are really low, then, you know, those are really cool things and benefits that you need to weigh against your, um, total compensation, weigh in your total compensation because, you know, really low healthcare costs are things that don't get taxed, right? It's, you don't get like a, oh, hey, you're, you have low healthcare costs and therefore you have to pay more in, in income taxes. That's, that's not how that works, at least in the U S. So it, it can be an incredible effect on it can have a pretty outsized impact on on your total compensation as can our discussion of potentially having to invest in more space at home to work from home oh yeah that was something that i hadn't thought about i mean i thought about the furniture and stuff that you brought up but the necessity of having to add an entire extra room is yep is something that i'm not sure everyone thinks about yeah, I'm I'm sure that doesn't come up most of the time, right? So, oh, I did want to mention other episodes that we talked about personal finance. I think the first time was episode 57, which was preparing for unexpected opportunities. This part five of that series, and it was specifically on personal finance. It came up a couple times in bonus episode number seven, which was Thanksgiving 2019. Oh man, we've been at this for quite a while. Mm couple days. Anytime there's dates and I go, whoa. <laughs> and then also episode 169, which was a thoughtful personal sabbatical with Mike Wood. Of course, when Mike was talking about a personal sabbatical, the issue of funding a sabbatical came up. So it's, it's worth going back and maybe listening to those episodes if personal finance is an especially interesting topic to you. Yeah, and I would say maybe go listen to the Jason Langer episode 218 because he talks about how getting laid off taught him a, a lot more about personal finance as well as something his dad did when he was younger. Ooh, yeah, that's one that I missed. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios. <laughs>